Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. This morning I want to start off by taking a step back um, and putting some stuff into perspective considering the big picture a little bit of where we are as a church in context of where we are as a nation and the whole cosmos, I guess. Uh, it was about a year ago that I started to speak with uh, Pastor John Eric about preaching through the portions of the Bible that related to the church in Ephesus. It was last summer, and I said, I think we ought to study the church in Ephesus, not the book of Ephesians, which is a great book, and we did already, we already went through Ephesians, but the church in Ephesus, because there are two or three chapters in the book of Acts that relate to the church in Ephesus. The entire book of Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus. Now we're in First and Second Timothy, written also to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and eventually we'll get into the book of Revelation and spend maybe two weeks on the letter to the church in Ephesus. So we actually cover five books that deal with this one church in this one city in modern-day Turkey. And we begin to talk about, you know, looking at the church in Ephesus and how we would teach through this and kind of sketched out this uh, overarching plan of what passages we would preach at, on at whatever given week. And when we did that, we obviously had no idea that there would be a coronavirus. We had no idea that there would be a George Floyd. Like, we didn't foresee any of that obviously. But I've been amazed as we've preached through Ephesians and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy how timely these concepts really are. Like I, This week in particular, but many weeks as we've preached through, I thought, man, I probably would have picked this anyway. If we were just doing a series on current events, I would be in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Ephesians because so many of these passages are relevant to what we look at. But and, and we're going to look at that a little more deeply today as we look at the church's uh, social responsibility to be part of the larger society. But I want to remind us of something, that before we got into the church's social responsibility, before we got into how people should relate to one another, before we got into all of those things, the first thing we studied about the church in Ephesus, and this goes back to the book of Acts, was that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I preached that, started preaching that around the beginning of this year. We started, we, uh, it was the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020. Before we got into their view of spiritual gifts and their view of spiritual warfare, and before we did all that stuff, the first thing we looked at was Acts uh, 18, 19, and 20. Look how they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if God wasn't telling us something back then about what we would need now. You know, I mean, little did we know in December of 2019, January of 2020, what we were about to experience, right? But I look back at that and I think, oh, the Holy Spirit is what we need. I mean, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and our own sensitivity to the Holy Spirit is what we needed then, and it's what we need now. So rather than just, you know, leave all those sermons off in the past, you know, six, seven months ago, I just wanted to revisit those for a second and say that 
That was a word to us from God of our dependence on the Holy Spirit, even in a time like this that we are currently experiencing. Now, obviously, I don't need to rehash the news for everybody. We all know what's been going on the last couple months. But I also think it is, while it's important to not be obsessed with the news, it's good to be aware of what's going on. Um, At the end of July, last month, just last week, I believe, the moratorium on evictions expired in, in, I think, at least 30 different states. So when the government passed the CARES Act, which provided many of us with a stimulus check, part of that legislation was also to put a moratorium on evictions, meaning no one's going to get kicked out of their homes if they can't pay rent. It did not mean that your rent was forgiven. You're still going to have to pay that eventually, but you're not going to be put on the street because you couldn't pay that. And that legislation expired last week. Now, certain states and certain cities decided to go ahead and personally extend that. So, for instance, I believe in Pennsylvania, they extended that to the end of August. Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, extended it through the rest of 2020. So, no one will be evicted for, they can be, we, people can be evicted for other reasons, but not failure to pay rent. So, if you're an annoying tenant, you can still be evicted. So, don't play your music after 10. But that's another sermon for another day. Um, But you're not going to be evicted for failure to pay rent. And that's that. So at least in Philadelphia, that goes through the rest of the year. But here's the reason that that was uh, an issue that needed to be addressed. Because at this point, and this was a, uh, I'm quoting an article from CBS News. At this point, 43 million Americans face eviction. Four, that's, more, that's about one out of nine people face eviction, meaning they're behind on rent, meaning if they, went to, if they went to eviction court today, they would probably be evicted. So obviously, like, like I said, if you're in Philadelphia, you have a few more months. If you're in Pennsylvania, you have till the rest of this month, and maybe more legislation will be passed. I don't know, but I've been thinking about those 43 million people this week who don't know what's going to happen next month, the end of the year, who don't have a job lined up, who maybe, the, maybe they're good for the rest of the year, but when, the, when that passes, when that time period passes, how are they going to make up six months of back rent? Like, how are they going to do that? So I've been thinking about those people this week. I don't have an answer necessarily uh, for that, but this passage that we're going to look at today, while it's not talking about eviction, uh, it is talking about the church's social responsibility, that the, the obligation that the church has to serve as part of the larger community. So with 43 million people potentially facing eviction, this is the question that I want to try to answer today. What is the church's social responsibility? What is the responsibility or the obligation that we as the people of God who have been saved by Jesus, what do we have as a responsibility to the rest of society? What do we owe them. Now, I want to share two quotes with you that frame the way I think about this. The first quote is from a pastor named Bill Johnson, and it's just one sentence. He says, we owe the world an encounter with God. And I say that frequently. You may have thought that I made that up. I totally stole that from another person. We owe the world an encounter with God. Jesus himself said, if I do not do the deeds of the Father, don't believe me. Jesus said that. 
If I don't do what the Father does, you don't have to believe me. He gave the whole world an, a, a way to opt out. I don't know who we think we are that the world should believe us if we don't do the works of the Father. You know, Jesus went around healing the sick, teaching people how to love one another, reconciling people, casting out demons. So the world better have listened to him. <clears throat> but I would say that it's rare that many of us probably... It's no one has been fulfilling the deeds of the Father as effectively as Jesus, right? Yet we want the world to listen to us, but we're not doing the deeds of the Father. We're not being a father to the fatherless, a judge for the widow, as we read from Psalm 68, putting the lonely in homes. We're not doing those things. We're just demanding, listen, listen, listen. But we're not doing the deeds of the Father. So I do believe if Jesus said, if I do not do the deeds of the Father, you don't have to listen to me, the flip of that is we owe the world an encounter with God. I mean, who, who else in the world is qualified to introduce people to God than those of us who claim to be following God and make our entire lives about worshiping God and becoming Christ-like, right? So who else owes the world an encounter with God? I think we have an obligation to introduce people to God, to Jesus. But I do think it goes a little further than that because we can, if we're, not, if we're not reading the whole Bible cover to cover, we can <coughs> over-spiritualize that or make it uh, uniquely spiritual and forget about the practical needs that people have. So if one of those 43 million people who are going to be evicted comes to us and says, me and my kids are going to be out on the street, I've been out of work for six months, and uh, there's no way I can make up six months' rent, and I definitely don't have enough money for a deposit on another place. And we say, my Bible study and I will pray for you. Well, that's nice, but <laughs> they need help too, you know? And so we often treat like prayer and practical help as mutually exclusive rather than can we do both? Can we pray for you and also provide some practical help? That leads me to the second quote that I want to share with you. It's a little longer, so I'm going to read it. This is from a cutting-edge uh, pastor named A.W. Tozer. This is probably from the 1950s. He said, There's no use to try to preach the gospel to a man who's hungry. If he's hungry, give him a pork chop. Amen. <laughs> Don't talk to a man about Jesus when all he can think about is a pork chop. Give him the pork chop first, then talk to him about Jesus. That's wisdom, brothers. I like that. I like the reference to pork chops. I like everything. I mean, look how practical that is, right? You're, we're trying to preach to people who haven't had a meal. They're hungry. Give them the pork chop, for, pork chop first, and then while he's eating the pork chop, share the gospel with the person. Does that make sense? So I see Bill Johnson saying, and I agree with, we owe the world an encounter with God, and I see A.W. Tozer saying, uh, give the man a pork chop, and I just come merge those together, and I say, we owe the world a pork chop. This is what people want. No, that's a joke um, that did really well in the room, for those of you that watch, watching. Uh, we do owe the world an encounter with God, and I think the vehicle to get to that moment is through practical acts of compassion and mercy and help. Does that make sense? So what is the church's social responsibility? I actually want to read uh, 
it's kind of a long, it's not that long, uh, statement when I can find it in my notes. We owe the world uh, an encounter with God, and here's what we owe, uh, here's our social responsibility. It is to perform acts of evangelism and discipleship through ministries of mercy, compassion, and power. To provide acts of evangelism and discipleship, meaning we are sharing the gospel with those who have not heard the gospel, or we are discipling those who have heard the gospel and respond to the gospel. Acts of evangelism and discipleship through ministries of mercy and compassion and power. So mercy and compassion has to do with offering practical help, meeting felt needs that people have, you know, like helping them stay in their home, helping them put food on their table, those types of things. But also I added power, which many people do not add, because there's, it's more than just getting someone some groceries or helping them pay rent, because when a person ha- needs some sort of uh, spiritual breakthrough in their lives, a gift card to ShopRite just doesn't do it. Right? So we are not choosing spiritual versus physical. We are engaging both. So uh, to perform acts of evangelism and discipleship through ministries of mercy, compassion, and power. Sometimes people really do just need us to pray for them. Sometimes they're in a situation where they need a miracle. Uh, sometimes they need physical healing and they've been given no hope from medical professionals and they need someone who can pray for healing and maybe God will miraculously heal a person. Uh, you know, when a person is, this is a real thing and you know, people question this, but when a person is dealing with a demonization issue and they're being oppressed and uh, attacked by spiritual uh, enemies, you know, a, a pork chop doesn't answer that issue. You know, they need someone who knows how to deal with that situation. When someone is feeling the weight of their sin, taking them to Wawa and getting them a hot coffee doesn't deal with the, weight, the issues of the weight of their sin. They need to hear the gospel. And so this is a holistic, fully comprehensive approach that I want to encourage us to take. Now the story, or not the story, but the passage that we're going to look at today from 1 Timothy uh, is a very specific issue that they were dealing with in the church in Ephesus, and it had primarily to do with widows who were in need. I want to give some context to uh, what was going on at the time, because I think without the context, you're going to read this passage, you're going to be like, man, this is like 13 verses on widows. What, what does this have to do with many of us? But in context, this passage is about more than simply widows. It's about the church's social responsibility. As we've been covering for the last month, Pastor John Eric started this process about a month ago. What, what Timothy was dealing with in the church in Ephesus was people were leaving. There, there was false teaching. There was sexual immorality. There were other reasons that people were leaving the church. They were just all out abandoning their faith in Jesus and leaving the church. Paul has already been dealing with with the idea of people leaving the faith as well as false teaching elders who are taking advantage of vulnerable women. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, it tells us exactly part of the problem. Among these false elders are those who enter into the households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins 
led on by various impulses. So this is not saying that all women are weak. It's saying that these women in particular were in vulnerable situations and false teaching men were going in and taking advantage of them and drawing them away from Jesus. Here's the situation that many of these women were finding themselves in. In Greek or Hebrew culture, women often married much older men. There was often a 15-year age gap. Okay, and so when a woman would marry a man, he's already maybe twice her age, at least 15 years ahead. So, you know, who's likely to die first in that situation? Probably the man who's 15 or so years older, right? Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but in ancient Greek, ancient Greece, they didn't have life insurance, they didn't have pensions, they didn't have 401ks and retirement plans. When that woman's husband died, she also lost her income. Now, maybe she could work, potentially, but she certainly was losing a big chunk, at least 50% probably, of her income, if not greater. Remember, we're not talking about Philadelphia in 2020. We're talking about what we call, would call modern-day Turkey 2,000 years ago. So these women were marrying when they were young. The men were probably 15, 20 years older than them. Uh, the women usually outlived the husband. There were no pensions. There was no life insurance. There was no social safety net. There was only your family. When the husband died, the family took care of the widow. But what happens when the family either isn't there to take care of the widow or just won't? They just choose not to. Well, this is the question that Timothy's, or Paul's addressing for Timothy is what do we do with these widows in the church who their husbands have died. With their husband's death, they lose their livelihood. They didn't cash in on a life insurance policy. They're not getting his pension from the city. You know, like the, there was no drop payment None of that stuff. She's just out. This is not only is she devastated by the loss of a spouse, now she's like, what am I going to do? She's in the same position that these 43 million people facing eviction would be in. Like, how am I going to keep a roof over my head? We'll get to the details in a moment. Paul says primarily your family should come around you to help you, but in the instances where there is not a family to come around, the church needs to step up and help. So, if you had no family, the church was your only hope. Here's what was happening. The widows were remarrying. Often, they, they were remarrying maybe for love, but definitely for life, because this is how they stayed alive. And there were not a lot of Christians at this point. They were a small, small group. You couldn't go to a Christian concert, or you couldn't go to the church down the street and try to meet a man. And so these, many of these widows were marrying men who did not follow Jesus, and it was drawing them away from the faith. Does that make sense? They're essentially having to choose between my faith in Jesus or surviving. They're being put in this almost impossible choice, this really challenging choice, and some of them are choosing survival over Jesus. And Paul is instructing Timothy, you need to create a program or a situation where people aren't faced with that choice where people don't have to choose between leaving Jesus to marry this man or staying alive. So we're going to create a little program or a little organization in the church so that people aren't put in that situation. So this church program that we're going to look at in 1 Timothy 5 existed to prevent them from having to choose between following Jesus and surviving. So let me read this. This is a little bit long. It should only take about two minutes to read, so you can follow along behind me on the screen. 
Paul says to Timothy, honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone also fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list if only, uh, list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married." This incurring condem- thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan." If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Okay, so if you read this passage, right, it should smack you right in the face. A lot of references to widows here, right? I mean, this passage is on the surface and plainly, it is about widows and how to care for them in the life of the church and how they're to conduct themselves. But it is not limited to widows. This is a specific situation that Paul is addressing in the church in Ephesus. There are some principles that we can pull out of this passage that apply not just to widows, but also to orphans, but also to the homeless, but also to the unemployed, but also to the ill, that we can apply to vulnerable groups uh, that are broader than simply widows. Does that make sense? So here, there's just two primary observations. I'm not going to go as deep as I would like to go today. Normally, I try to go word from word. There are two big picture principles that I want to look at, and then I want to illustrate how the church has handled this throughout church history. Number one, first observation is this. The church should help those with a genuine need. Let me... Uh, illustrate what I mean by that before I show you where it is in the passage. The church should help those with a genuine need. I've lived in Philadelphia long enough to know that not everyone that asks for help really needs help. Have any of you ever experienced that a little bit? Uh, I remember two specific instances where someone rolled up and I was doing a food distribution for them and they had the sweetest car. I mean, it was, they told me they couldn't afford groceries because their car payment was $450 a month. And I thought, I got two cars and it still ain't $450 a month. And uh, I mean, we gave them the food, don't get me wrong, but I also offered that they attend a class on how to manage your finances, which they didn't. But not every need is a genuine need. I remember there was a time where we, we uh, this is early, early in the church. We didn't have a lot of systems in place. We didn't have a lot of experience even. So people would need, they would say, I need help getting my prescriptions filled and I would just give them cash. Yeah, I'm not from Philly. So, you know, I just, I just assume everyone's telling the truth. 
so that I, would, I need money to get my prescription filled. And, uh, and I would just give them cash. And they kept asking. And finally I said, hey, can you bring the receipt back? Like, bring me the receipt so that I know that you spent this money on your prescription. Well, they brought the receipt back, and there was black ink crossing off, like, most of the receipt. And then they wrote in handwriting the cost of their prescription at the bottom of the receipt. Well, that's the last time I helped them, okay? So I hate, you know, I, I, I don't want to be cynical. I never want to go, grow cynical, but I do want to be a wise, good steward with the money that people give to the church because I see when people give money to a church, it is an act of worship. It's a spiritual act, you know, and so I want to make sure that it's, we maintain the spirituality of that process by also distributing it in a wise way that honors, like, principles of stewardship. Does that make sense? Okay, so... You know, we started requiring receipts and we changed the way we do things. We have a nice, you know, one page, you know, kind of policy that our deacons follow about how to distribute money that I feel way more comfortable with. It's informed by passages like these as well as other passages. And during this pandemic, we have distributed quite a bit of food and money to people in need. Uh, and I'm grateful that we've been able to do that. But we follow these principles the church should help those with a genuine need. What is the genuine need? Well, so in this chapter, on three different occasions, Paul uses the phrase, widow indeed. Help those who are widows indeed. What does he mean by that? So this is a little corny, it's a little nerdy, but a widow indeed is a widow in need. Okay, this is a person who has an actual real need. Uh, He says in verse three, honor widows, who are widows indeed. And then if you jump down to verse five, he actually defines what a widow indeed is. She who is a widow indeed (coughs) and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties, that's prayer requests, and prayers night and day. A widow indeed, in Paul's mind, was someone who was alone and who was godly. They had no other help. There was no family she was not getting remarried. There was no money left. This is a person, it says right in verse five, one who has been left alone. No other help. There's no family to step in. There's no uh, nest egg to rely on. And has fixed her hope on God. So this is someone who is walking in obedience to God's word. They're not, she's not in this situation because of her bad decisions or her sin, because she's reject, rejected Jesus. This is a woman who has, is living a godly life, but the circumstances of her life have put her in this situation where she has this need. So she's demonstrating a genuine need. She is also uh, of a certain age. It says in verse 9 that she's 60 years or older. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. So there's actually this qualification here that this, this woman in this instance has demonstrated that she has contributed to the community of faith. She has served. She has uh, discipled her children. She has been humble. She's contributed. There, there's an expectation of Paul actually all through the New Testament that everyone contributes to the community. Now, obviously, there are examples. There are people that have disabilities and handicaps that 
are so severe that they're not able to contribute uh, the way that they would like to. But we're not talking about those exceptional cases. Now we're talking about this is an able-bodied person who has the ability to contribute. And Paul, all through the New Testament, he says he himself worked with his own hands so that he did not have to rely on them uh, giving him money. And, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, Paul built tents in his spare time. He would make tents in his spare time. And so uh, that's how he made ends meet as he traveled around preaching the gospel. Paul says that uh, in Second you know, uh, Tim, I think it's Second Timothy, that if you don't work, you don't eat. That's kind of rough. I kind of don't think that's rough, actually. Uh, but nowadays, that seems like kind of mean. But it's it's kind of not. Like you need to contribute. Everybody has to contribute. Not everybody has to consume. If that does that make sense? If everybody consumes but nobody contributes, what are we going to have eventually? Right? So he's saying everybody needs to contribute. Not everyone has to contribute at the same level. Not everyone is expected to do the same thing, but everyone must contribute. I mean, look at the ways that he's just saying that this person just has to have a reputation for good works. What's wrong with that? And what about that is discourteous, right? Uh, has brought up children, has shown hospitality to strangers. I mean, I've said this the last couple weeks. Hospitality to strangers in the New Testament just means love for strangers or love for foreigners, okay? If she's washed the saints' feet, that's an act of service. If she herself has assisted those in distress. When you break this down, it actually sounds about right to me that this person has also helped other people in need, right? That this person has contributed in the, in the bringing up of the next generation one way or another, that this person has a reputation for doing good deeds, that this person has been serving the community her whole life, and so when she's in her time of need, this is a no-brainer. Of course, we're going to support this person here. And then uh, the second observation that I want to make, so the first is the church should help those with genuine need. The second observation is this. When possible, families should step in to help first. Now, there's a key qualifier in that statement, when possible. This is not always possible. But when it is possible, families should step in and help first. In verse 4, it says this. I'm going to read verses 4, 8, and 16 uh, in succession. If any widow has children or grandchildren... They must first learn to practice their religion or practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Then verse eight, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and it is worse than an unbeliever. And then in verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So when possible, family should step in and help first. Paul says that this is an act of piety, which that's just a way of saying this is you practicing what you preach. This is you, this is you practicing your faith. When your family member, when you're the person uh, who has the resources and you have a family member who is in need, you should offer to provide for that need, especially if this family member is also a member of the household of faith, meaning they're also a follower of Jesus. You should do that. This is an act of piety or reverence. In verse 8 it says, if you don't do that, this is an act of unbelief. 
It says you're worse than an unbeliever, meaning you are practicing unbelief, like you're not practicing what you preach. You're not saying that the, the things you've been uh, communicating to the world actually have an application in your own personal life. So verse 16 says that those of us who are followers of Jesus should be making preparations to help family members. Now this is an inter- you know, I'm in that phase of life where I'm not dependent on my parents and they're not dependent on me, but I understand that there may become a day where that's a possibility. And those of us that are followers of Jesus need to make some preparations for that. Now, you know, most of us can't put a million dollars in the bank. I get that, you know. I can only put like 500 Gs in there, but just kidding. 500, just 500 period feels like a lot to me. But making, I just want to encourage you. I've said this a couple times over the years. Those of you that are able and of age should begin thinking about what will I do for, what can I do for my parents if the time should come where they have a need and how will I prepare for that? Does that make sense? Uh, Whether that means having a furnished wing of your house that they can live in or money set aside or whatever, a one-way plane ticket. Some way, okay, two of you got that joke, all right. Some way that you can, can take care of them. This was a biblical ethic that you would, that your, your parents would take care of you, but then you would eventually be able to return that to them and take care of them. And I know some of us do that already. Other of us need, others need to start thinking along those lines, like how would we do something like that? So when possible, families should step in and help first. So here are the two main observations here. The church should help those with genuine needs. Secondly, when possible, families should step in to help first. Now, I want to I make sure that we interpret this passage correctly. The church's approach to social responsibility does not be, need to be the same as the government's approach to social responsibility. This passage is written to followers of Jesus. It is not written to the government. Does that make sense? The government is going to do what the government is going to do, depending on the elected officials that are put in place, right? The church has the Bible, and we're supposed to live by the Bible, And then maybe there will be government programs, maybe there won't be government programs. I did a little research this week. Did you know that private pensions that you might get through your employer did not come into existence in the United States till 1875? That's just about 145 years ago. So what did people do before that? They didn't have private pensions. And that's the oldest uh, social safety net that relates to those who are getting of age. Social security did not start until 1935. And 401ks were invented in 1979. I was invented in 1981. I'm as old as the the idea of a 401k. So before there were 401ks, before there were retirement plans, before there were pensions, what did people do? Family is what people did. Church is what people did. Let me just make, I'm going to do this in less than 10 seconds, okay? Obsessive, 
compulsive over-reliance on the government is not biblical. End of statement, I'm gonna move on, okay? God has set it up that family should care for family first, then the church should step in, okay? Now we do happen to live in a context where the gov- our government does have some social safety nets and some programs and I support that and I think that's a good thing. I just don't want people to get dependent and reliant on those things. I want us to be contributors uh, as, as much as we can be contributors. All right, so families should step in, churches should step in. Last summer, I had an opportunity to take a little theological field trip to Manhattan, about 75 miles north of here. And uh, I took a walk through Manhattan with a group of other pastors. And we visited a couple churches that were just two blocks from one another. We visited a church, if you can show the first slide, Andrew. Uh, this is the church of Pastor, I'm just going to call him Pastor Walter, okay? Actually, his name is Walter Roschenbusch. This was his church. It's now the West Side Theater. This is in the neighborhood of New York called Hell's Kitchen. This is before Gordon Ramsay made that a thing. Okay, and then we went to a second church that was just two blocks away that was at at the time called the Gospel Tabernacle, but now, if you can go to the next slide, Andrew, it's called John's Pizzeria. These two churches are two blocks away from each other. Well, they're not churches anymore, but in the early 1900s, so imagine, we're in the early 1900s, late eight, 1898, 1899, 1900, 91, and 1902. The turn of the century, the beginning of the 20th century. There's these two pastors in the same neighborhood, Hell's Kitchen, really tough neighborhood. Kind of think of like Kensington or North Philly. Pastor Walter and Pastor Albert, two blocks away from each other. They're in this tough neighborhood. They were both seeing the same things every day. They were both seeing poverty, homelessness, alcoholism. They were performing funerals for children who were dying because of lack of medical care. And both Pastor Walter and Pastor Albert were rocked by the needs that human beings were experiencing every day in the streets of the neighborhood that they lived in, in Manhattan in Hell's Kitchen. Imagine your neighborhood being called Hell's Kitchen. Now, Pastor Walter and Pastor Albert, despite being just two blocks away and experiencing the the exact same thing, took very different approaches to how they were gonna resolve or meet these issues. And this, this comes back to what is the church's social responsibility. Pastor Walter developed something Called, that we call nowadays the social gospel. Pastor Walter believed that by making social change, you could bring about spiritual renewal. That if you changed the laws and the systems and the programs, that eventually a great revival would come as people would begin following Jesus because we changed the system. This is almost backwards of what we believe in what Pastor Albert said, which is it's not social change that brings about spiritual renewal, but it's actually spiritual renewal that brings about social change. In fact, we have a definition, our church has a definition of revival, and it is spiritual renewal that leads to social change. Some churches define revival as long church services, loud church services, 
It's a church not too far from me that defines it as barbecues. I kind of want to go there. That's the pork chop anointing. You know, but, but it's not a move. A.W. Tozer said this, it's not a move of God till it changes society. And I believe that. And I believe the order is spiritual renewal first, the heart of a person being changed first, and then that results in change in society. Well, Paul, Pastor Walter had it the other way around. Pastor Walter taught that Jesus was not a substitute for our sins. He was an example for us to follow. This undermined the New Testament teaching of the atonement that we are all sinners who need a savior and that Jesus is the substitute who died for our sins. Pastor Walter believed, no, Jesus is an example of a good man. And the way he loved people, we should love people. And like, how could I ever disagree with that, obviously, right? But in addition to being a good example, he was also our substitute. He was also our savior. Pastor Walter believed that Jesus did not die for personal sins. He died for systemic sin, meaning sin that's in the culture, sin that's in the government, sin that's in society, but he didn't die for your personal sins. Pastor Walter uh, the logical conclusion of his teaching was a book that he called The Christianization of Society. Now, maybe that sounds like a nice book that you would want to read, right? The Christianization of Society. But here's the thing. His perspective of the Christianization of society was not through sharing the gospel with people who voluntarily gave their lives to Jesus. It was kind of like making a Christian culture. It's like, well, you know, we'll have you know, Christian laws and Christian music and Christian art and Christian this and Christian that. And it was all over people's heads. It didn't require anyone's heart to change. And if you've ever lived in a vaguely Christian culture where Christianity was just kind of the default, but no one was experiencing it personally, it actually kills spirituality. If you've ever driven through, okay, not to pick on any, anywhere, but like one of the Bible Belt states where it's just like Christianity's on the billboards, it's on the radio, it's on the bumper stickers, but I'm not sure it's in the heart. Ooh, that is, that is toxic. That is, that is like, it, it just, it, it, it deadens people to the actual move of God. And so the logical conclusion of Christianized society is this kind of like social Christianity without personal faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? And then the problem with that is we live in a, a pluralistic society where not everyone is a Christian. So is every law going to be based on Leviticus? Is every uh, policy going to be based on 1 Timothy? I'm not sure you could even achieve that today. So what we need instead, and this is what Pastor Albert taught, what we need instead is individuals who have voluntarily given their lives to Jesus and been transformed by Jesus who are now working to see society changed. Does that make sense? We're trying to change hearts first, and then the result of that is the change of society through laws, systems, procedures, that kind of thing. Does that make sense? But if hearts aren't changed, it doesn't matter what the laws are. Does that make sense? I mean, hasn't slavery's been illegal for like over 150 years, right? Is racism been eradicated from people's hearts? 
Jim Crow, we're like 60 years past that. Is that out of people's hearts yet? No, right? So we need to start dealing with people's hearts. Now, that doesn't mean we don't touch the laws. Of course, we touch the laws as well, but you go through the, the human heart by introducing Jesus. So this is what Pastor Albert taught things very differently than Pastor Walter. Pastor Albert believed that spiritual renewal would lead to social change, that while there are systems that are sinful and unjust, those systems are primarily the result of human sin. A system is only as unjust as the person who created that system and runs that system, right? And I've said this, I teach this frequently, uh, righteousness and justice are the same word in both Hebrew and Greek. When you put unrighteous people in power, you're going to have unjust laws and systems. If you want just laws and systems, you have to put righteous people in power. That's, that's just like two plus two equals four. If, you know what, does that make sense? So Pastor Albert taught that Jesus was the substitutionary sacrifice for us that provided salvation, he did not believe in the Christianizing of society, but the evangelization of people and the transformation of hearts that would lead to change in society. So rather than, let's change all these laws and then everyone will come to faith in Jesus, it's let's share the gospel, people will voluntarily make a choice to follow Jesus, and then that will result in voluntary acts of compassion, voluntary acts of mercy. Those people will get into positions where they can change laws and change systems and change power. But it's, they, their hearts have to be transformed first. And that's what Pastor Albert was after. He was after their hearts. Now, lest you think that Pastor Albert was too spiritual for his own good, this man started orphanages, homes for the homeless, hospitals, uh, and has sent, I mean, his organization, which we are a part of, has sent missionaries all over the world who don't just go and do Bible studies with people, although we do that. We have doctors in hospitals. We have people rescuing people out of sex trafficking. And, and so we are meeting social needs as a result of this concept. Um, the, the logical conclusion then of, the, of Pastor Albert's teaching was that the primary emphasis should be evangelism and missions that brings about change in society. So we stand in the tradition of Pastor Albert, and some of you have probably picked up by now that Pastor Albert, we call him A.B. Simpson. He uh, founded a church which started other churches and colleges, and we're part of a group of about six million people worldwide called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. This has been our heritage and our history. This is part of American history as well. And I think that we have been living in the unfortunate wake of the social gospel. Well, this is Pastor Walter. Because we keep expecting things to change without going after transformation in the person's heart. We keep expecting you know, to deal with the sin and the culture, but we're not dealing with the sin in the heart. And there is sin in the culture, and we have to deal with the sin in the culture. But I don't know how we expect to do that. Everyone's, everyone's got their finger on everybody else's stuff instead of their own. Does that make sense? 
And until we deal with our own stuff, until we realize that we needed a Savior who was a substitute, who's dealing with sin that's in here, not just out here, and there is sin out here, he's dealing with the injustice that's in my heart, the racism that's in my heart, the issues that are inside of me. When those get dealt with, that's obviously going to spill out into my interactions with other people, right? So what is the Christian's or what is the church's social responsibility? It's acts of evangelism and discipleship through ministries of mercy and compassion and power. We really are after people's hearts first. Do we go after laws and systems? Absolutely. But we go through the heart to get there. Does that make sense? We, we, if we don't change people's hearts, it's not going to be lasting. It's not going to be real. It's not going to really alter uh, society. And ultimately, we're going to need Jesus. I mean, we can, we can do that to a degree, but we ultimately need Jesus to return and usher that in. But in the meantime, as we wait for that, we are faithfully engaged in spiritual renewal that leads to social change. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.